Hello, I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, and welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. Sometimes we see someone who we believe is in a vegetative state, and we realize that we're in the room, we're examining them, maybe we say things to our colleagues, we interact, but you always have that sneaky feeling, maybe they understand, you want to be respectful in front of them. Well, we have a guest today who's going to talk about how some people who we believe are in a completely vegetative state may actually be aware of what's going on. Our guest is Dr. Adrian Owen. Dr. Owen, first of all, welcome to the program. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. Let me ask you a few questions about that. What would you say the truth of that is? Is that something that happens 2% of the time, 50% of the time? And are you able to measure this? It's something that happens up to 20% of the time. And that is, you know, between 15 and 20% of patients who appear to be entirely vegetative. And that is, they'll open their eyes, they'll look around the room, but they'll make no responses whatsoever. If you ask them to wiggle a finger, they won't wiggle their finger. If you ask them to move a toe, nothing. But when we put them into a brain scanner, it becomes clear that in fact something quite different is going on. They are there, they are aware, and very often they're aware of everything that's been happening to them, every conversation that's gone on around them, and indeed every decision that's been made in their presence. Dr. Adrian Owen is currently Canada Excellence Research Chair in Cognitive Neuroscience and Imaging at the Brain and Mind Institute. Obviously, he knows of what he speaks, deals with it. How'd you get involved with this initially? I mean, a physician audience, what was it that attracted you to studying the mind and trying to understand the brain? I trained in neuroscience. I was always very interested in computing and the brain. And this was in the late 1980s. And it was around the time that brain imaging, things like MRI or functional MRI, really took off. The great thing about that is it really combines my two loves, the brain and computing. That's where I was the time that I ran into a patient who supposedly was in a vegetative state in 1997. And her name was Kate. And she was introduced to me. And I thought, you know, we should put this person into a scanner and see what's really going on in her brain. And that's really how this whole enterprise started 20 years ago this month, in fact. And when you did that, what was it that gave you that feeling that person was aware? Well, at the time, everybody thought this was a crazy thing to do because Kate had been vegetating for a number of months. Nobody thought this was a sensible thing to do. It was expensive and it was a waste of time. She was in a vegetative state. But what I did is I put pictures of Kate's friends and family in front of her while she lay in the scanner. And the part of her brain that we know is responsible for recognizing faces. A part of the brain known as the fusiform gyrus lit up exactly in Kate as it would with you and I. It was stunning at the time. Really, we expected nothing. But Kate's brain responded exactly as an entirely awake person would. I can't tell you that we knew that she was aware at that point, but it was the first indication that some of these patients aren't what they appear to be. And when you first found that out, was it stunning to you? I mean, you mentioned, I mean, and what did others around you think? Oh, it was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. But I thought it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And I would show this to my colleagues and say, hey, you know, this woman's responding to familiar faces. Her brain is responding. And, you know, the response was, well, that's amazing. That's interesting. But is she conscious? And I then realized that, you know, we couldn't really conclude that she was conscious just on that single result. And we had to go on and test more patients like Kate and work out how it was that we could establish that some of them truly are actually conscious, but none of these brain responses are automatic. I mean, you've done so many things in your career, and you mentioned the past 20 years. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but a lot of things you've done, you've also used the internet. Like, for instance, you actually were able to establish and try to get a wider scientific community to assess cognitive function using the internet and looking at proven tests of memory and attention and those things. Obviously, you are right in that sense that you understand computers, you understand technology, you love the brain, and you're kind of putting it all together. Yeah, what I really enjoy doing is applying technologies, particularly to novel situations. 
with the vegetative patients, it was a case of taking proven technology, fMRI, something that we know works, and applying it in a specific clinical situation. And, you know, that worked, I think, you know, spectacularly well. And we've gone on to be able to even communicate with some patients by getting them to change their brain activity in the fMRI scanner to indicate yes or no in response to questions. You know, these are patients who physically don't make any responses at all. The work that you're referring to, the internet work, is something that I'm very passionate about. I love the idea that people could go on the internet and test their brains. You have a website, cambridgebrainsciences.com, where anybody can go and they can log their brain function. They can test their memory, they can test their concentration, they can test their problem-solving or reasoning abilities. It'll stay there forever. If they're ever unfortunate enough to have a brain injury, they can refer back to that and see how they performed before they had that brain injury. There's so many topics for a primary care audience like we have to talk about. One of the ones I wanted to talk about with you, Dr. Owen, is concussion, professional sports, college sports, high school sports, football, soccer, the others. We're learning so much more about the effects of concussion and some of the sad effects, and there are some things being done, but maybe not enough. What's your feeling about that? My feeling is that this is exactly the sort of thing that we need to apply technology that we have available to us to really understand what's going on. I've only moved into the concussion field relatively recently, but it's completely clear to me that, like many things... I don't want to be rude to anybody, but I would say the way that concussion is assessed is left in the dark ages. It's typically assessed using cognitive or neuropsychological tests that are between 30 and 50 years old now, administered often with a paper and pencil. And, you know, we could do so much more. We have incredibly sophisticated tools that are available over the Internet that can really tease apart very specific brain deficits. And this is not what is typically used to assess things like concussion. Again, you know, I'm only moving into this field relatively recently, but I think what we need to do is to have much more widespread testing of brain function. And the only way to do that is to take advantage of the internet because it's the only way to really do it effectively and to amass a huge database of data, which we can use to compare players who've sustained brain injuries and who may otherwise slip under the radar because the tools that are currently used are just not sufficiently sensitive to detect significant but relatively minor cognitive changes after brain injury. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. You're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. Our guest is Dr. Adrian Owen. We're talking about the brain. You know, I was thinking about what you talked about, your story about that patient. It must have really turned the medical world on its ear as far as some of the ethical decisions that we make, whether someone is brain dead, whether they're with it, all those sorts of things. What kind of changes have you seen? I know you, I guess it was back in 2006, you did a paper, it was the New England Journal of Medicine, where you looked at those issues. It's very interesting. And in that first, it was actually 2010, New England Journal of Medicine, and and that was the first patient who was supposedly vegetated. He passed all of the agreed clinical criteria for vegetated state, yet we were able to communicate with him and ask him a series of questions that he was able to verify that he actually was in there, he was conscious, and he had been for five years. And you're absolutely right. It did cause a storm at the time. I don't think anybody questioned the data. There was no question that this guy was there and that he was aware. But as you say, it opened up a whole ethical can of worms. And we're only really starting to unpack that now. I get approached a lot by, you know, legal cases, requests or legal petitions to withdraw nutrition and hydration from some of these patients. And I think we have to be very careful that we don't just leap in here and use this sort of technology We haven't fully decided what we're going to do. I mean, people often say to me, well, if you can ask a question of a patient, you know, why don't you ask them whether they want to live or die? And, you know, I'm not afraid to think about that question, but I am afraid to ask it right now because in most civilized countries, we don't have an ethical framework in place for determining what we would do with the answer to that question. I think until we do, until we know what we would do, you know, we need to be very careful how we proceed. 
who you are, obviously, right? You wrote the paper. It was a 2006 science article I was referring to for the other study. The other thing that was more recently, I mean, you mentioned about the cost of functional MRI. You're also starting to look at the value of the EEG, which a lot of us use in our hospitals. What's that telling you? It's actually, at the moment, telling us much the same as the the MRI in the sense that the only group study that we published suggests that between 15 and 20% of patients who fulfill all clinical criteria for the vegetative state are actually aware or partially aware. I will say the the EEG results haven't been as conclusive as the fMRI. They have great advantages, as you know. It's portable and it's much more cost-effective. A lot of the testing that we do is in the patient's homes, which is great. They don't have to transport to the MRI, but it's harder to do. It's harder to decode the EEG signals to be absolutely sure that a patient is aware. Whereas with fMRI, you know, we have 10 years' experience now. I think we're very good at it. There's another, in fact, more promising technology, I would say, that is near-infrared spectroscopy, which uses a similar type of approach to fMRI, but it's portable, uses light to measure blood oxygenation. And we published a paper this year showing that it does just about as well as fMRI in determining whether somebody is aware or is conscious. It's much more portable and it's much more cost-efficient. It costs less than fMRI. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. My guest, Dr. Adrian Owen. And, you know, I like looking at the minds of people we have as our guests because our audience, again, have interest. Now, let me get this right. You are singing a band called Untidy Naked Dilemma? <laughs> I do. I do. I sing and play guitar in Untidy Naked Dilemma. Yes. <laughs> I guess you're using all your right side, left side at every part of your brain, I guess, right? Exactly. And it's an amazing name. And we came up with the name, again, using technology. We used a band name generator because none of us could agree on what the right name for the band was. We put in the characteristics of the people that played in the band and it suggested untidy, naked dilemma. There you go. There are all sorts of reasons for coming up with band names. So that's probably no different than the Rolling Stones or whatever else we have out there. What haven't I asked you that you want to talk about? Any things that you think are important that would be interesting for our audience? You know, I'm really sort of passionate about people assessing their brains. And we've just launched what we're calling the world's largest sleep study. We did this two days ago. If anybody wants to take part, it's the URL is worldslargestsleepstudy.com. We had 44,000 people sign up in the first few hours. And this is really to look at the effects of sleep deprivation, because I'm really concerned about how little sleep people are getting and how much effect it's having on their ability to function the following day. So we're asking people to log their sleep and then do a few cognitive tests. They're great fun. They're set up like games and people can test their brain. And not only will you get your results and find out how sleep is affecting you, we'll tell you how much sleep you personally should be getting and how you relate to everybody else in the population, which right now is 44,000 people. It's it's pretty interesting. It's the world's largest sleepstudy.com. That is fascinating, and people can take part. And how long will that be open? Obviously, this program we are recording today, it will air, it will air again, and it will be a podcast. How long are you going to leave that open for people? We will leave the study open forever, at least for as long as we can. It's not something we're just going to take down. Obviously, we'll stop collecting data at some point and put it all together and write an academic paper. But the study will be up, worldslargestsleepstudy.com, at least for the next couple of years. Another question that I have as we get to the end of the interview here is we have primary care providers listening. What do you wish we would do either through neurologic exam, through our physical exams, or our discussions with our patients that, from your perspective, could benefit them as far as their mind, whether we're talking about dementia, aging, concussions, whatever. What's the big things we should be doing? It would make me very happy if the interaction between coalface clinical medicine and science is, you know, a little bit closer together. I think, you know, a lot of the time it takes a long time for scientific discoveries to sort of trickle down to clinical practice. You mentioned the 2006 paper. It's 10 years since we showed that some of these vegetative patients are actually aware. It's seven years since we communicated with some. I would like to see techniques like fMRI used much more widely. 
Regardless of price, I think the benefits for individual patients to be correctly diagnosed and even to open up a channel of communication with some of them is extraordinary. To see it in a single patient is amazing. I would love to see it much more widely deployed, almost to become clinical standard. But, you know, it's my clinical colleagues that need to make that happen rather than me. I'm a neuroscientist. I just develop the techniques. Dr. Adrian Owen, we've run out of time. I want to thank you for sharing your insights on primary care today on ReachMD. It really was a pleasure. I mean, this was such a fast-moving interview, but it's exciting work you're doing, and keep up the good work. Thanks very much. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot for calling. Thanks again to Dr. Adrian Owen. This is Dr. Brian McDonough. If you missed any of this discussion, please visit ReachMD.com slash primary care today. You can download the podcast. You can learn more on the series. And thank you for listening.